Music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. This episode is brought to you thanks to support from The Space through funding from Arts Council England and the National Lottery. For more information, visit discoverthebluedots.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the Blue Dot podcast wherever you're listening. It's the soundtrack to countless sci-fi and horror movies. The otherworldly accompaniment to a vision of the future. At times unsettling, at others ethereal and beautiful. And it's regarded as one of the most unique instruments ever created. To celebrate 100 years since its invention, we've spoken to engineers, composers and performers who've learned and loved the theremin over many decades to tell the story of its past, its present and its future. Welcome to the Blue Dot Podcast, The Theremin Story. Russia 1920, and sandwiched between the revolution and the rise of Stalin, a unique period of experimentation in the arts and music is taking shape. Enter Lev Sergeyevich Termin, or Lev Theremin, as he would become known in the West. The story of the theremin begins not in the music studio, but in the laboratory. As a physicist, Lev studied electrical circuits and magnetic fields, before joining what's now the EOF Institute in St. Petersburg. Over a series of experiments, Theremin had built a circuit of which he himself was a part. The capacity of the circuit was measured first with a needle to provide readings, and later that needle was replaced with simpler but more accurate audio tone, emitted to demonstrate whether the capacity was increasing or decreasing. During experiments, Theremin discovered that the tone changed in pitch when he moved in front of it, higher in pitch when he moved closer, lower when he moved away. In that moment, the first prototype Theremin was born, as if by complete chance. Cyril Lance is the chief technical officer at Moog Music. He's been developing products at Moog, including their Theremin models, for the last 15 years. The thing that makes the theremin so unique is that you are actually a part of the electronic circuit. So like on a, on a synthesizer, you would hit a key, which then you know, triggers an event that electrically creates sound, but you are not, you're mechanically controlling that electronic circuit through an electronic interface. But in the theremin, you are actually part of the circuit. I think that creates this very deep connection. And to break it down, one of the fascinating things to me about the story of the theremin is over time, it, it's a real parallel between our ability to understand physics and our electromagnetic environment and technical innovation and how that kind of has a symbiotic relationship between art and culture and instrument development. And Leon Theremin was a physicist working around the turn of the 20th century when there was this radical transformation of understanding of electricity and magnetism and how electromagnetic energy moved through the air or the atmosphere. And, um, you know, he was studying spectroscopy and he was using these technologies to, to enable his physics research. But as a musician, he w discovered that um, this transformed 
uh, he could transform this circuit into an electronic instrument. Basically, he was using the concept, which then became kind of the fundamentals of radio communication in the early 20th century, which was the concept of heterodyning two different oscillators. And to break that down into something much easier to understand, an oscillator is a set of components that allows you to um, transfer energy between two different components. One's called an inductor and one's called a capacitor. And they each store and release energy in complementary ways. And so you can think of it as they're playing catch with each other and the elect- the inductor is like throwing its ball over to the capacitor and the capacitor says, okay, I'm going to throw it back. And the values of those components determine how fast that ball goes back and forth and that creates an oscillation. So it's like a dance between the inductor and the capacitor. So if you have an oscillator that's a fixed frequency and typically in, in radio frequencies, they're up in the hundreds of thousands of cycles per second. So the the units there are kilohertz, so maybe like 300 kilohertz or so. So this energy is bouncing back and forth um, 300,000 times a second. But the ear can only hear frequencies in the audio frequency, which are very slow. So the lowest note that a human hears is typically around 20 times a second or 20 hertz. And the fastest when you're young may get up to... 20,000 times a second. And if you're older and played rock and roll for 20 years like me, it's probably about 14 or 15,000 times a second or or 15 kilohertz. And there's a couple gaps in there where symbols are. You take a, a fixed frequency and then you take another oscillator and you attach it to the antenna. And what the antenna does is it allows your body to react with the, what they call the variable oscillator. That oscillator fundamentally moves around the same speed as the fixed oscillator, but your body creates a capacitance between your body and the antenna. And remember I said an oscillator is a conductor, an inductor, and a capacitor. So um, your body is adding an additional capacitance to that oscillator circuit. And so as you move further and farther away from the antenna, you're basically, in essence, being a variable capacitor. And that's how you're modulating the frequency of this variable oscillator. And the heterodyning principle is that if you have two frequencies and you mix them together, you get the sum of those frequencies and the differences of those frequencies. So if you added two oscillators around 300 kilohertz or 300 times a second, you'd get a frequency way higher up in the 600,000 times per second or 600 kilohertz. Of course, you can't hear that. But if the oscillators are very close in frequency, the difference of that is in the audio frequencies. So you're heterodyning the frequency down into a region that you can hear And then you have another oscillator, which is then rectified. And that's another technique in radio for amplitude modulation. So Lev took these very fundamental communications tools, uh, a heterodyne frequencies, which was used in early radio for frequency modulation, and rectifiers, which we use for amplitude modulation. And the rectifier would control volume on one antenna loop. Again, your body is changing the capacitance. And then On the other side, your body capacitance is changing the frequency of your heterodyning system. So as Steve said, it's a really simple 
system in fundamentals. And what's so wonderful about it is it's just using the most basic properties of physics and electricity and magnetism and the fact that you're connected to this physics and really physically manifesting sound through your electrical properties is is really fascinating. To turn that into a, a profoundly playable instrument is an art form. And that's what Lev Theremin spent his life working on. As a trained cellist, Lev's new instrument had an immediately familiar feeling, even without the bow and strings he was used to. And so the laboratory became a rehearsal space as he adapted classical pieces for his new instrument to test its range and experiment with tone and vibrato. One of the first pieces he attempted was Sans Sen, The Swan, heard here performed by the legendary Clara Rockmore. In a short space of time, word spread, and following a period of further experimentation and development, Theremin was soon demonstrating the instrument outside the laboratory, first to colleagues, then as a public concert. He was then invited to meet Vladimir Ilyich Lenin and his staff. Lenin was entranced by the performance and was shown by Lev how to play the instrument himself. Impressed by the potential of Theremin's scientific research as part of his plans for the electrification of Russia, Lenin eyed up the Theremin as having extraordinary significance as a political tool and a symbol for Russia's advancement. From that point on, Lev's future would be closely aligned with the progress of Russia, both domestically and further afield. In the extraordinary years that followed, Theremin would go on to develop a model of television, move to New York, become friends with Einstein and perform at Carnegie Hall, whilst at the same time adapting his technology for a wealth of different inventions, even including the security systems that were put in prisons like Alcatraz. 
On his return to Russia in 1939, he was arrested and imprisoned in Stalin's Siberian gulags in the Purges. Within months, however, his expertise and unrivaled knowledge saw him move to a Sharashka, a prison designed to hold scientists and researchers who could help the Russian efforts to spy on their enemies. Here, one of his finest inventions would be created. The Great Sealbug was a further development of Theremin's technology and was the precursor to a field of electrocommunications now called RFID, a tiny transmitter that required no power and which could passively broadcast sound when targeted by microwave beams from another location. In this scenario, picture that transmitter hidden inside a large wooden carving of the Great Seal of the United States, broadcasting sound heard through the beak of the bald eagle at the centre. That huge carving was presented to the US ambassador to Russia as a gift, a gesture of goodwill, and hung in plain sight on the ambassador's wall for over seven years. The covert listening device, also called The Thing, was one of the most extraordinary and audacious espionage devices of the 20th century and was developed by none other than Leon Theremin. For now, that's where the Theremin story in Russia ends. By the 1950s, a young engineer from New York City would lead the next generation of the Theremin. Through the 1940s, the influence of the theremin spread. It was used in early sci-fi films like The Day the Earth Stood Still, as well as performed by Samuel Hoffman in Billy Wilder's The Lost Weekend and Hitchcock's Spellbound. These appearances made the theremin synonymous with the uncomfortable, uncanny and often distressing atmosphere that's become its hallmark. Robert Moog's first experience of the theremin came in the late 1940s, building the instrument using parts and instructions from a kit in Electronics World magazine and then playing it in a high school assembly. He started out, like many theremin enthusiasts, as a hobbyist, with a handful of parts, a soldering iron and drill. The dream of building this cutting-edge instrument was within reach for anyone with a technical mind and a bit of patience. The Connection between Moog and Theremin starts back in the 50s. Bob was a teenager and he was really interested in electronics. And that was the was an era where you could buy, you know, Heath kits and things like that. Electronics were a lot simpler. Uh, probably they were tubes, but it was wasn't uncommon to, you know, for people to tinker and build their own stuff. So, you know, Bob built a theremin, a tube theremin, and he also wrote an article for um, a magazine. Radio. I can't remember the actual actual name of it, but and his family supported him in launching a a, a small business selling kits in 1954. Uh, I believe he was 19 at the time, and so this was his first foray into the theremins. But it, it was an instrument that captivated him because it was, you know, he he had an interest in music as well, and uh, the the engineering behind it is uh, deceptively simple, but quite elegant in the way that it creates a musical instrument. In learning to build his DIY theremin, Moog began to understand and appreciate the original Russian builds. In the foreword to Albert Glinsky's definitive biography of theremin, Moog referred to the elegance of theremin's designs, what he described as subtle technical principles. Those principles would go on to inform the ingenious and meticulous circuitry of the synthesizers and other instruments he would build throughout his career. 
Following Theremin's death, Moog would carry the torch for a new generation. And what's interesting to me about the story about Bob is Bob was post-World War II, which was another huge change in the understanding of uh, electricity magnetism and quantum physics. And that all led to the creation of the transistor. And so instead of using these big tubes, you could now use small transistors. So Bob also kind of saw the second kind of technological and cultural evolution of the theremin in context of the late 50s and post-World War II and kind of the avant-garde movement, which then led into the early 60s and the evolution of electronic music and the revolution of electronic music and culture that happened then. And now we're kind of in another time of evolution where we've got, you know, phones that are, you know, more powerful than the computers they used to send people to the moon on. So it's just, it's a really interesting story to me if you look at it in that context. But the basic physics of the instrument is fundamentally the same. And Bob, I was listening to an interview with Bob about a month or so ago that the folks in marketing had pulled up and Bob said something that really struck with me. He said the incredible thing about the theremin is that Lev Theremin got so much right, you know, back in the 20s. And that is remarkable. And I think the other remarkable thing about the story, which you kind of touched on, is the collaboration between the toolmaker and the artist. And with Lev, it was, you know, this kind of Clara Rockmore became the instrument's muse, but also kind of really helped Lev. Lev was actually a very accomplished musician in his own right. And then Bob too, you know, he worked with artists and, and we work constantly with theremin players. Like Doric Chrysler has been an incredible contributor to the instrument, Pamela um, Stick. Stickney, or she's, uh, her name used to be Kirsten, um, you know, all these artists, uh, recently Gregoire Blanc, uh, Lydia Kotvia, who is directly tied to the history of Lev Theremin, and on and on and on. And they all contribute an incredible wealth of knowledge to enable us at Moog to develop these instruments, not so much in their basic circuits, but in the art of turning them into a really beautiful instrument that people can really vocalize. And technically, some of the aspects of that are things like how do you get really stable, a really stable instrument, but also the response of the antenna. So how do you get the most playable range? Uh, because the, the field is not linear. So like a violin, the notes get inherently get closer and closer and closer together as you go higher up in pitch. As an issue with no tactile response is really challenging. So how do you make that response more linear? How do you get the volume response so that you, um, you have a nice range of really snappy motions for quick staccato type effects or very, very subtle and slow dynamics? And one of the things I think about the theremin, which is really incredible considering it was invented you know around 100 years ago is it has an extraordinarily large dynamic range so you can play from the most subtlest quiet passages to having a you know, really large dynamic range on the instrument and that is not so typical of electronic instruments and we live in the day of compression of dynamic range um, so i think the theremin is really cool in that regard a really great playing theremin, you know, has incredible pitch capabilities for the artist, but also a really subtle and large dynamic range, which is really kind of the essence of expression. As Steve said, you know, voice, the theremin could be incredibly vocal or 
be very string-like. And now, as we add new technologies, we're expanding the kind of sonic vocabulary of the instrument. Within a few years, the technical education Moog had gained from those DIY kits led to an encounter with Raymond Scott, who bought a theremin as a gift for his daughter. Scott was a respected composer and founder of Manhattan Research Inc., which developed modulators and other electronic components. Moog and Scott worked together, with the young Moog building circuitry for Scott, including the theremin that worked as a core component of Scott's prototype Clavivox synthesizer. It's fair to say that the theremin was just the first step in a unique musical education for Moog that would form the foundation of much of his future engineering and create the blueprint for much of what we see from synthesizers in the decades to come. about the history and the science behind the theremin, but its most special feature is, of course, its sound. So what is it that makes the theremin unique, both to watch and hear? As electronic music became more widespread, the theremin was used more and more in experimental production. The Radiophonic Workshop, based in the BBC's Maidervale Studios in West London, was the home of a new wave of music technology, and Paddy Kingsland is a member of the Radiophonic Workshop, who's been composing and performing with the theremin since the 1970s. Much of his use of the instrument has been incidental rather than melodic, creating effects to heighten tension and atmosphere. The timelessness of the theremin's sound has been key to his work, creating samples and pieces that are as emotive now as they were 50 years ago. The theremin has a very enduring quality to it. You can play it now and it sounds great and it it sounds now, um, whereas if you looked back at the kind of Hammond organ effects that were used with horror movies in the 30s, they sound really corny. Now, it's not, I suppose it's partly to do with what they were playing on it, which wasn't exactly abstract, but it, it, do, it doesn't do it in a funny way, whereas the, the theremin is capable of uh, sounding weird in a kind of cool way. Despite its relative limitations, for a composer, the theremin, in actual fact, had a huge amount of potential, becoming a versatile weapon in the experimentalist's arsenal. It's one of the reasons it continues to sound fresh and relevant in the present day. Well, you can do lots of different things, obviously, with it, from 
playing an actually standard tune with a lot of emotional content in it. But then if you were doing, let's say, a science fiction thing, you could do something which was vaguely comic, but with a sci-fi element to it. And just by the way you approach the vibrato, the, the amount of swooping around and portamento you, you, you do with it, you can make a comic sci-fi effect or a comic horror effect. But if you leave all that sort of um, stuff out and just have it doing something very moody, you can create a really disturbing effect by using um, semitones and in-between semitones, especially with echoes going on at the same time, which gives you this kind of uneasy tension. And it's very good at doing those sorts of things because it's very flexible. I mean, we play a note on a piano, that's it, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're talking about single notes here and obviously piano is at, at its best when it's, you know, in full polyphony. <laughs> but um, the theremin will only play one note at a time. So you can't play chords, obviously. So you have to rely on, on the, um, the line of the melody to get over the effect you want. I suppose you could make it very romantic, you know, if you uh, had the sufficient technique to, to uh, play a tune on it. I mean, something my the boss who ran the Radiophonic Workshop, Desmond Briscoe, used to always say uh, was that it's quite easy to be funny with electronic music. It's quite easy to be sinister or horrific. But it's not very easy to be beautiful. And I think you ought to be beautiful... With the theremin, you have to have a very, very good technique with it. While the instrument was born in the laboratory and Paddy's first experiences came in the quiet solitude of a recording studio, it's through sharing the experience of the theremin with others that he and his colleagues at the Radiophonic Workshop have really been able to tap into its unique joy and wonder. Lots of contradictions about the theremin. It's a fascinating machine. It does sound great. I don't know, it's the character, I suppose, of the waveform that's being used. But it's, it's not just doing one thing. If I'd invented a theremin, I'd have probably just had something that you wave your hand at and just altered the pitch of a note. But what it does as well is it allows you to shape the note with a control with your left hand so you can actually vary the sound's volume coming out of it. It makes it much more expressive than it would be otherwise. It's, it's a curious thing. People are utterly fascinated by it. I remember, I think it was Blue Dot, actually. Um, we did a sort of workshop where we had all kinds of bits and pieces on show and people were sort of banging drums and recording them and playing them backwards and doing all sorts of things like that. But the thing that really was the hit of the, the kind of audience um, interest that, at that was the theremin. I had it set up and did a few noises on it. And people then come up and say, can I have a go? And she yeah, go on. And you couldn't get them off it because it, it, although it's, it, it's exquisitely difficult to play, and I wouldn't pretend that I had come anywhere near any kind of musicianship in playing it because I use it mainly for atmospheric effects. But people are not put off by that. They love to do it because... Unlike if you sort of have a, a, an absolute beginner on a piano, which often sounds awful, or even worse, a violin, people on the theremin uh, get to enjoy doing 
at something or other on it straight away. And uh, of course, you know, there are people and there were kind of geniuses in the past, like Clara Rockmore, I think, was the first lady who was such a great player of, of the theremin, who just mastered it and can play tunes absolutely beautifully and expressively in the way that a, a, a fine violinist can, can do that. The other end of it is the fact that you can have great fun on it, particularly if you use it in conjunction with sort of echoes and delays and other treatments uh, on it. It's uh, fabulous um, fun to use. The playing of the theremin is one exciting experience, but the more you understand and appreciate what's going on inside, the more thrilling it is. The theremin, by its nature, may be an incredibly simple creation, but that simplicity is thanks to a masterful feat of engineering, both in theory and practice. Steve Dunnington is the hardware team leader at Moog Music, designing the inner workings of Moog Instruments since its days as Big Briar in 1994. His first product was the Series 91 theremin that was produced until 1997. Technically, the, the components... The bare components that you would are required to make a theremin are, are quite few, but to make a good theremin goes beyond just you know those basic technical components. There's there's quite a bit of uh, cleverness that's required to make something that's a playable instrument. So that's one. And the other thing is, uh, yeah, walking up to a theremin is uh, for some people it's just a novelty, you know, and it's odd, it's weird. You you don't touch the instrument. You wave your hands around. You make this kind of warbly sound. Uh, but the, for the people who get it, it, you know, it's an instrument that can be as expressive as a violin or a voice, anything where you have continuous pitch control and continue, you know, full dynamic control of musical sound in the right hands. It's, it's, uh, it'll bring a tear to your eye hearing, you know, what, what a really fine musician can do with it. And the challenge of, Conquering this instrument is really, it's not an easy instrument to play. The tools that it requires musically are not only a great ear, but a, a great control of your body and a, a determination to overcome the fact that it's, you have no tactile feedback whatsoever. Uh, you have, you're relying on relative pitch and muscle memory to, to make music out of this thing in the air and your reactions time to what you're hearing. So. I don't know. It's kind of a it's kind of a miracle that music can be made with, <laughs> with this instrument. Uh, it, it is a, a true testament to human potential, in my opinion. I think that's also something Bob saw in it. The simplicity of the theremin makes it a fascinating one to learn, and musical education, experimentation, and play are at the core of Dorit Kreisler's work. Dorit is an Austrian composer and the founder of the New York Theremin Society, as well as the Kid Cool Theremin School. As a virtuoso player and an educator, she's been instrumental in the development of an educational approach to the theremin, an instrument she's described as notoriously underestimated in its capacities. Like Paddy's fun demonstrations at festivals like Blue Dot, Dorrit's Kids Theremin School has travelled worldwide to give hands-on sessions and show children a taste of the amazing possibilities of music and science working together. 
while the New York Theremin Society has hosted workshops and concerts, as well as this year curating the Theremin 100 compilation to coincide with this year's special anniversary. When we had the idea of establishing the platform for the New York Theremin Society, it was definitely in that vein of really wanting to um, give more legitimate, accepted form in as a non-profit organization to to be um to be a platform where people could reach out to get the information that they need to apply the theremin in different art disciplines in a more knowledgeable way and to establish it in and you know elevate the non-traditional forms as well for me it was especially important to um tap with this instrument a little bit also in education because I felt that um, when I have 10 four-year-olds playing Brian Eno along in a 10-piece theremin orchestra, it, it really opens the door to a very natural approach and vocabulary of electronic music that then, you know, they grew up with and hopefully, you know, carried into the world differently than, than previous generations. And I thought that was really important and the instrument really lends itself because it has this open, you know, kids are so used to encountering interfaces and um, this very playful experimental approach. It's, it's an uphill battle for, for an instrument like the theremin and in general also for, for um, electronic music. Interestingly enough, more than synthesizers, um, a theremin really has the potential to lend itself being applied to play classical pieces, you know, like usually played by a violin or a cello. It actually works much better than other electric instruments. So the theremin really has the potential to make these bridges into these different genres and pull things together, I think. In the earliest days of the theremin, building credibility and legitimacy was crucial to the instrument's adoption, and many of the theremin's earliest performances were alongside classical accompaniment, performing often with piano in a more traditional concert setting. Clara Rockmore was one of those early theremin performers, and her legacy as probably the most famous and influential thereminist in history continues to endure. She, like those earliest players, mostly performed classical music, often with her sister Nadia Reisenberg, helping to showcase the theremin as a legitimate instrument that required technical skill and a deep understanding of music theory and paved the way for women in electronic music. It's her story that was a factor in Dorrit's forming of the New York Theremin Society. When Clara Rockmore encountered the theremin, um, having been an exquisite violinist already, it was really important for the instrument because she really elevated it to um, a, such a masterful level of virtuosity. It also is, histor- is historically significant because she really is um, the first female 
a sound pioneer that publicly performed on an electric instrument. She went touring with Paul Robeson and um, uh, they both had pianists to accompany them and they both symbolized for that era, we're talking the mid-end of 20s, just a really significantly progressive, exciting new era of music making. She unfortunately didn't tour as much as she would have wanted because the instrument was very difficult to transport. But um, luckily, we have all these films and recordings to really um, witness her great mastery. And quite frankly, up to this day, 100 years later, there are not many that even come close to how well she performed. She, though, concentrated on an exclusively um, classic repertoire, and she didn't write herself. I really wonder or wished she would have explored that angle more. She is just, um, yeah, she set the bar very high for the instrument in the classical approach which should not mean that this is the only way you should use this instrument, though. The theremin has entered and exited popular culture many times over the decades, with Bo Moog referring to its experiencing waves of interest. A resurgence in the 1980s and 1990s with new models and a high-profile documentary gave the theremin an incredible new surge of popularity. Well, in the late 80s, a group of American composers and, and academics discovered it. Yeah, he was still alive and they actually got him to come to Stanford and talk and that's Bob got to meet him. So around that time, you know, there was, here's another moment where the theremin came again, right? It was, it was, it had disappeared for a long while and then interest grew again because of the story of, of theremin. And then there was this filmmaker, Steve, Steve Martin, who made a, a a movie about it, uh, Theremin and Electronic Odyssey. And it introduced uh, the world to Leon Theremin and Clara Rockmore in a really interesting, poignant way. And um, it didn't tell the whole story, but it was a good, you know, it was a good story. And there was also some really great scholarship that started around this time. Um, uh, a fellow named Albert Glinsky wrote a biography of Leon Theremin that if you're looking for a really excellent resource on um, the inventor's life, I highly recommend it. Uh, so, yeah, of course, this was the second wave was at the kind of the beginning of the Internet, you know, where it became common. So you had this movie and then you had a community growing online of people who were theremin enthusiasts and they could find each other uh, and they could talk about things. And that kind of was the seed of the theremin becoming a sustainable uh, instrument in our culture, and now you have people who you give, uh, like Carolina Ike, who gives lessons on how to use a theremin on on you know YouTube videos, and artists like Pamela Kirsten, who she, she's another person who's like just mastered this instrument. It's led to a whole new generation of theremin players. So yeah, and and around you know so around this time, another thing that happened was we introduced an instrument called the Etherwave Theremin. And so this was originally a do-it-yourself article, an electronic musician. This article was an, originally, you know, we were going to offer some kits to sell along with this article. And we're still making this <laughs> instrument now today. So this is you know, a good 25 years later. 
So yeah, we were, we were surprised at, at how many people came out of the woodwork and said, yeah, I want a theremin. The, the Etherway theremin was unique in that it was very playable. It was also affordable. It became kind of a, a well-accepted instrument in, in, in the world. So you see quite a few of them out there. Over time, the theremin story has continued to develop and Moog music has driven the instrument's evolution forward with new technical advancements. In the years that followed his first explorations in the 1940s and 50s, Robert Moog developed a number of new theremin models, including the Etherwave, each time refining the inner workings and adding new features. Back to Steve Dunnington. There's the Series 91 and then there was the Etherwave. There's the Ethervox, and then Bob designed a thing called the Etherwave Pro. And then we have an instrument called the Theramini. The final chapter so far is um, the Clarivox. Um, and each one of these instruments does represent sort of a different evolution of the design of a theremin. They all approach it with different perspectives and different goals. The Series 91, uh, that was, I mean, there's, I think we made like 150 of those. There's not that many out there in the world. It was an expensive instrument. At the time, they were hand-built. You know, they were, they were crafted. <laughs> this, you know, the, 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 the name Series 91 comes from 1991. This is, you know, this is around the time Bob energized about uh, making electronic music, musical instruments again in a, in a really serious way. Up till then, he'd been doing primarily consulting and education uh, throughout the, the 80s. I mean, he also worked for Kurzweil for a while. It's uh, vice principal, vice president of engineering, but you know this was this was around the time where he was he was people were asking him to make stuff, and he was getting energized about it. And so the series ninety one was is interesting because it's not like any of his other theremin designs. It actually does not use heterodyning to make pitch. It's actually a a voltage controlled synth inside. <laughs> so you have. Uh, you know, essentially two volume antennas uh, on that instrument. The pitch antenna is the same topology as the volume antenna in terms of rectifying the um, oscillation. So, yeah, so that was an interesting design moment. And one of the advantages of the way he did the Series 91 theremins was you had this incredibly linear pitch response. It's more like playing a piano. If you, if you try to play it, it's kind of shocking when you walk up to it. It's like a different experience. It's not like other theremins. It's interesting. You know, I don't, I don't know. It's, uh, it, it, you know, there's not many of them out there to, to experience it. So, you know, the Etherwave, the goal was a classic theremin design using heterodyning made of parts that a hobbyist could acquire and it's low cost and playable, you know. It's not the finest theremin ever created, but it's it's really it's really a nice instrument. And um, now with the Ethervox, uh, with Bob fulfilling a promise uh, that he made with the Series ninety one that he was going to design a, a MIDI theremin. Um, so MIDI, if you don't know what it is, it's musical instrument digital interface. Uh, it's been around since the late eighties. It's a way of getting musical technology to talk to each other. It's, it's an interface. Uh, it's a standard. Um, so you can have a keyboard that controls a sound module, for instance. Um, and, and people have adapted it and used it for all kinds of things. Uh, but it is still used in music, um, in music technology. Um, it's undergoing its own evolution. 
Uh, anyway, the, the way that uh, MIDI is, was designed uh, as a, a description of musical events was really kind of keyboard-centric uh, originally. And so designing other types of MIDI controllers or instruments other than things that lend themselves to keyboard control is, is a bit challenging. That's one of the neat things about uh, the Ethervox was that it, it solved that problem in a number of ways and, and none of them were technically perfect, but they were all kind of interesting. So then the Etherwave Pro was, I think for Bob was uh, a challenge because it was, it came, he was designing that, if, you know, to kind of celebrate being, it came out in 2004, which is 50 years after his, you know, first commercial product, you know, his theremin kits in 1954. And uh, so, you know, it was, it was kind of, to him, it was a, it, it was an adventure in imagining a really, really excellent theremin, playing theremin. And if you've ever seen pictures of it, it's in, a, in some fairly unique packaging. It's, it's got a, it doesn't look like your typical theremin, which is usually typically in a box and antennas stick out of it. Uh, this one has got a curved wood panel. It's, it's figured some is made out of maple and there's the pitch antennas attached via an arm that plugs into this box and, so this, uh, it was an, also an adventure in uh, mechanical design in, in that aspect. Um, they were quite difficult to produce, actually. The theremony, Cyril has not talked about, but the theremony was our, you know, our first foray into digital theremins. Um, and it uses some pretty interesting DSP technology to, to create the sounds. And it's, you know, it allows you things like pitch correction um, and variable pitch correction, like, you know, what you might hear in auto-tune effects. But it also allows, in, in this case, the use of wavetables to generate the sound. Robert Moog passed away in 2005, and it took nearly a decade for the next instalment in the theremin story to see the light of day. In 2014, the company released the entry-level Theremini, an instrument the writer Albert Glinsky described as a theremin with training wheels. The theremini could be described as a digital theremin, inasmuch as it offers a vastly different experience to the previous purely analogue models. It offers pitch correction and a built-in tuner to provide a chromatic experience, slotting the notes into recognisable scales, which meant the playing experience was automatically in tune. This was a vast difference from the experience of Rockmore and Hoffman, whose playing was defined by a meticulously precise style to keep notes perfectly in tune. But in creating a theremin that could be understood and played more easily, it was an important step in bringing the theremin to a new, younger generation and continuing its story. The theremin, one of the inspirations was how do you create a product that can just really excite people who maybe would never heard of theremin or tried to play the theremin or really had that kind of desire to get into the musical virtuosity of it. So, you know, it had a, a wider range of sounds that were fun and it had delay and it has a speaker in it so that you could just set it on a table and play it and you don't need an amplifier. And it, um, it was lower cost and it had a digital interface 
you know, uh, one of the things about a low-cost instrument is the engineering becomes extremely, well, it's a different type of engineering challenge. What's fun from an engineering point of view is a low-cost product is often as challenging and interesting to design as a high-cost product because you have to be much more creative in your choices. Um, so the Theramini, it had the goal of exciting and creating a new evolution of theremin enthusiasts or just people, just get people excited and knowledgeable about it. And um, those that would play it and get captivated by it could then upgrade to an ether wave or, or one of the, or eventually something like the Clara box. And the Clara box shares some of the technology from the theremini um, and, and actually builds on that. Some of that fundamental technology in the theremin is then evolved into the Clarivox, just like um, some of the fundamental circuits from the Etherwave Pro have evolved into the Clarivox. So I, I love that all these instruments are kind of part of this big journey. The Theramini also, though, was very interesting because it had a very extensive MIDI interface and control voltage interface. And what we found is that there is another kind of segment of the Theramini community that loves that instrument to use in very creative ways in kind of very, um, what's the word, um, involved performance setup so that people use the theremini, as I said before, to control lights and sounds of other instruments and mix the sound of the theremini with things that are happening in their other production environments. And the thing about MIDI, which um, Steve mentioned before, so like the Ethervox, the theremini, and the Clarivox share, is it allows you to synchronize your instrument with other digital instruments that are happening in your performance environment. And, and now so much music, and especially electronic music, is, is tempo um, specific. So let's say you, you have a track on your computer or your Ableton link or a, a click track that the drummer is syncing to. You can actually sync movement and change of sounds on your theremin uh, along with all this other stuff that's happening. So it really fits well in a production environment. So, you know, it's just really interesting talking about evolution. The Clarivox takes inspiration from the Ethervox and draws a lot on the Etherwave Pro, which also took a lot of circuit topologies from the Ethervox um, and then takes some of the learning from the Theramini and then as a starting point and then creates a new instrument. And I, I think as in all these things, you know, the fact that Bob created so many different types of theremins with different approaches and that he was, I, one thing I love about the story that Steve just told is it shows how Bob was, was such an open person and he was really curious and always trying things new ways. And Steve said something to me when we first started working together and I was really just learning about Bob circuits. He said, you know, if you look at Bob circuits, he never did the same circuit the same way. He, you know, he always had a, you know, if he was doing a circuit, he always kind of tried to make it a little different or modify it. So for me, it's exciting with all these instruments, heads in any instrument, you know, these are just this long path. And I, and I think there, there's still so much to be done on theremins and, and so much more to explore. It, was, it makes it really fun.
So what place does the theremin have in music today? For a flavour of some of the amazing array of theremin music in the modern-day world of electronic music, you could do worse than explore the roster of artists who've collaborated with Doric Chrysler in recent years, who are a testament to the theremin's continued relevance and vitality, as well as Doric's Theremin 100 compilation, which gathered submissions from theremin enthusiasts from around the globe. Yes, well, it's always interesting to see where other people take your perspective and be pushed. I thought it was really wonderful when um, just last year, Laurie Spiegel, after seeing um, a Theremin performance of mine, um, wrote a piece for Theremin. So it was re- it's really interesting to see how composers interpret um, the instrument or collaborating with um, cluster um, in, in playing live with them when, when cluster um, both Möbius was still alive and um, Hans Joachim Rodelius. Or, for instance, working with um, younger um, musicians that come from different fields, such as um, Anna Strentemöller. Very, you know, a lot of musicians know and like the theremin, but they don't really. Um, know how many different things the instrument can do. A lot of times they restrict it to, you know, like melodic things like a guitar solo in studio work. Obviously, that's just a fraction of it. So I, I thought Anis Trentemüller was um, having a really good understanding of the color of the instrument and applied it in his compositions in a quite nice way. And then we played together live and he also produced one of my records. So um, a deeper collaboration spawned from that. I also enjoy that the theremin, you know, it fits in still everywhere and nowhere. So it's really interesting to collaborate, for instance, with, with institutions such as CERN that, um, you know, in their scientific outreach. So the, the physicality of the physics of the electromagnetic fields of the theremin applied to the physics of nuclear physics and kind of create a bridge between music and science. Those Those things I find really inspiring and fascinating. And that's just the theremin on this planet. Back in August and September 2001, the first musical broadcast to extraterrestrial life took place at the Yevpatoria radio telescope in the Crimea. As part of a series of transmissions called the Teenage Message, the Russian Academy of Science curated a number of theremin performances to be beamed into the furthest reaches of space, including renditions of classical pieces and Russian folk classics. It was titled The First Theremin Concert for Extraterrestrials. Eighty years after Leon Theremin performed in public for the first time, the next generation of Russian scientists were now to perform to a much bigger audience, if one that was a little bit more distant. If you thought the lack of gigs during the Covid lockdown was a drag, spare a thought for the audience of that teenage message performance. If there is extraterrestrial life in Ursa Major, the transmissions of that particular concert won't reach them until the year 2047. By that time, of course, the theremin could be an altogether different proposition. After what will be nearly a decade of Moog music tinkering, 2020 has already marked the release of a brand new Moog theremin, the Clarivox Centennial. But after a century of extraordinary innovation, 
What's next for the theremin? And if Lev got so much right, what's left to develop for this evergreen wonder of engineering? For a view of what the future holds, we return to Cyril Lance. Yeah, I would break it into two categories, and Steve, you might want to augment this after me. Um, one is just components have gotten better and manufacturing methods have gotten better, and also electronics have gotten smaller and using less power. So just to create a, a theremin that is smaller, lighter, uses less power, has components with much tighter tolerance, has components with much less thermal issues. So that'll stay stable, you know, over wider range of temperatures that will be reliable, that'll work in many different electromagnetic environments. There's the continual quest for making a better theremin, maybe making it more cost affordable, which I think um, Steve talked about with the EtherWave, that was kind of a breakthrough, uh, an affordable theremin that was reliable, that was very playable, that people could get and get intrigued by and, and, and still have a lifetime of development on it and travel with it and perform. The oscillator needs current to run. So what's the best way to produce that current? Um, you know, in the old days, it was very simple. And, and we kind of, with more modern components, can control that more reliably. So, you know, making a better instrument just as a fundamental theremin. And then on the other side, I would say there's the interest in looking forward into how the theremin might evolve because as the theremin community grows, uh, people are using it in a lot of different ways. And it's such an interesting instrument, both as a melodic instrument, but also as a, a, a controller of other equipment. So how do you interface the theremin with other analog equipment or even digital equipment? So I think there's the area of expanding the way the theremin can work in our modern music environments, which require um, analog voltages and also digital interfaces like MIDI. And then finally, um, how do you expand the sonic landscape and capabilities of the instrument? And Bob uh, uh, started a project that I think he spent many years working on called the Etherbox. And Steve, I believe you were pretty involved in that project. Um, that's before my time, but the Etherbox was kind of one of Bob's visions of, of kind of expanding the capability. So he had the fundamental theremin, but then he added a secondary oscillator and he added the ability to control it verse, with voltages and also some digital technology so that you can control it and, and, and even quantize the output. Well, the Clarivox inspiration was to have an instrument that simultaneously really celebrated, you know, the fundamentals of the theremin as Lev theremin envisioned and to create the best possible instrument that we could based really firmly on Bob's work, which Steve and I are blessed to <laughs> benefit from and study his work. And without that, I don't think we could do our work. You know, so fundamentally, the Clarivox inspiration is to have a theremin that plays as best as we could design it in that classical technique but then also expand on the work that Bob started with the Etherbox. So the, the Clarivox has two different modes. It has a traditional mode, which is what we just talked about, and it has what we call a modern mode. I don't really like that word, but, but it, it works for the instrument. Um, and that has the ability to have two different oscillators. The first oscillator can have the exact same wave shape and use the word exact loosely with the traditional, so it can produce the same sounds as a classical approach, but also then 
have a lot of different sounds and having the ability to have two oscillators, you can create much richer sounds. You can have noise, different types of filters, and even wavetable synthesis where you can have really crazy sounds. So all of a sudden you've turned this instrument, which had a singular voice of this very kind of vocal string instrument voice. And now you're allowing theremin players to not only have that, but to have the capability to do all sorts of things. You could use it just in noise and sweeping filters. And then also the ability to quantize your pitch to certain scales and modes. On the one hand, that can help people learn how to play the theremin or not get so frustrated initially. But really, that's not the artistic intent of that feature is just to have ways of using it in in very creative ways as it yet increasing the expression. And then a lot of attention on how you can change the field response of the antennas. So if you had a piece where you wanted very quick staccato um, or very dynamic attacks, you could change the volume to have a very quick attack. But if you had a piece where you wanted very large classical sweeps of your hands, you could have a more slower, far field. So all these capabilities are really to augment the fundamental instrument, but not take away from it. So the hope of these instruments moving forward is to still provide that fundamental, magical, mystical experience that Lev envisioned 100 years ago, but then to be able to allow people to use it in many different ways. And you can use voltages coming out of the instrument to control other instruments um, like modular synthesizers or anything you want. And some people, some artists use it to control the, the lighting or some other kind of environmental aspect of their performance. And actually that's interesting because there is also a parallel history of the theremin in avant-garde music and dance and performance. So John Cage and Merce Cunningham created a piece for theremin and movement you know, continuing the evolution of how does the theremin work in a performance environment. So there's an incredible, and, and what was interesting when we started the Clarebox, we talked to a lot of theremin players around the world. And I was actually kind of surprised that so many of them were really looking for new ways to explore and create on the instrument. So I think there's a tremendous, as Steve said, there's kind of a, with the internet has kind of created this crit- critical mass of a theremin community And there's also kind of this critical mass of using it in many different ways. People are using it in noise rock. People are using it in classical music and in theater and film and um, in punk bands and um, all sorts of different ways. So that's kind of exciting and fun. And, you know, I think um, one of the joys of being an instrument designer, I think I speak for all of us at Moog, is, you know, we create the best instrument we can based on these discussions. But then we get to see what artists do with them and their imagination and inspiration is always really wonderful to watch. And I think the theremin is poised for kind of another technological and creative step, another wave, as Steve put it earlier. At the same time as its unique engineering for a composer and performer, the theremin could be the most rewarding and freeing of instruments. Its non-chromatic nature has been one of the theremin's most attractive traits and one that Leon Theremin recognised straight away, even in the 1920s. He commented in an interview that the theremin freed composers of what he described as the despotism of Western scales and notation. 
By rejecting the typical music scales of the West or the East, you could argue Theremin invented the most universal of instruments, an instrument that could produce the sound of all cultures of planet Earth as it moved into a new century and an exciting future. A piece in the New York Times in 1927 also commented on how the instrument offered both composer and listener a simplicity and a directness matched only by singing, without any of the apparatus like a keyboard or pedal like other instruments. Nothing but simple expressive gestures of the hands, it said. It was reckoned by the Times that the theremin would, quote, open up an entirely new field in composition, a perfect marriage of science and music, art and technology, and despite the circuit boards and buttons, a very human one. So where better to leave things than with the thoughts of a theremin composer? Back to Dorit Chrysler. Well, I, I find that the theremin, it's, it's a curse and a blessing um, of the theremin that its interface is so unconventional. And when you describe all the technology that's based on the same functionality than this instrument, you wonder if it was really meant to be turned into a music instrument, which, was, which happened by accident when Leon was working on something completely different. It seems to be very easy to generate sound by simply approaching the instrument without applying any, again, Western musical approach. Unfortunately, the theremin, it, it can very easily sound very um, unpleasant, even though that's a very relative term. But I think if you would try to make a, a piano or a drum set sound horrible, um, you would have to work much harder than it would be on the theremin to instantly sound very, quote, unmusical. So, so that doesn't help, but it opens the door to be very approachable. I do almost think that if you've never played um, an instrument before, or if you're a virtuoso on any other instrument, that once you start diving really into mastering a theremin, which is possible, um, you're, you know, you're in the same position you're in, because you really have to rethink everything you've known before and you have the freedom to potentially find and develop your own technique depending on where you want to take it. So, so that freedom and autonomy is really enticing. And in a way, you know, it goes for a lot of other electric instruments as well. Only with the theremin, there's somehow more pressure on you because it can sound, you know, when you try to hit the notes and, and, and you obviously don't, it's, it's so much more of a struggle. I think that what made the theremin really attractive to me, for me, it was really um, a philosophical answer to, to being, to, to strive making music because it so literally makes you fight for every pitch, like climbing up a mountain. And when you finally get into the detail of sculpting this one note into sounding perfect. It is, it is such um, gratification, but you're reminded every second how frail um, the platform is you're standing on and that the struggle is 
never ending. And it's, yeah, for me, it's all, it's kind of hopeless fighting windmills and, and that constant struggle for some reason, there's something very endearing about it um, to me. You realize, you know, it's so obviously that you can't control the uncontrollable, controllable. You're not even touching anything yet. You're striving for it. And sometimes you have the moment where you succeed. You've been listening to episode six of the Blue Dot podcast, The Theremin Story. Thanks to our friends at Moog, Steve and Cyril, Dorrit and Paddy. Visit discovertheblue.com slash podcast to enjoy videos of the theremin in action through the years and our curated theremin playlist in addition to the other episodes in this series of the Blue Dot podcast. Thanks for listening to the Blue Dot Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening. And check out show notes and more information on this episode at discovertheblue.com slash podcast. This episode was brought to you thanks to support from The Space through funding from Arts Council England and the National Lottery.